Today, we continue the story of the murder of three little boys in West Memphis, Arkansas from 1993 with the tale of the pending investigation and the arrest of three suspects. Part two of the West Memphis Three, today on Thought Crime. Hey everyone, welcome back to Thought Crime and Keto and Crime. Today we're getting into part two of the West Memphis Three. In this episode, we're going to delve into the investigation as well as a list of suspects as it narrows down to the three suspects that we all know as the West Memphis Three. And I'm going to stop just before the trial portion and then I'll continue into the trial and the aftermath of the trial in part three. Part three probably won't be as long as parts one and two, but then again, you know how I am about being long-winded. So I hope you enjoy it. Let's delve into it, shall we? Picking up from part one where we left off, we know these terrible crimes happened on May 5th, 1993. If you haven't seen it, I'm going to link that episode here. Definitely check that out. Um, it takes you through the uh, lead up and the exact day of the crime, as well as what happened in the morning of the 6th, which is when the three bodies of the boys were found. Now we're going to get into the events of May 6th through the trial, as well as some background on some of the suspects before we actually get into the trial in part three. So the first couple of suspects I want to make you aware of are actually very close to home. Um, David Jacoby and Terry Hobbs, and for those of you on video, you can see them. Mr. Jacoby is the one in here in the upper right. Terry Hobbs, who is the stepfather of victim Stevie Branch, is here to the left. And down here on the bottom, though we haven't gotten to him yet, is John Mark Byers, the stepfather and adopted father of Chris Byers, also one of the victims. But uh, one of the first people that police actually question, of course, is the family. And uh, even though Terry Hobbs himself was not questioned as much as the other parents, he was questioned, and his alibi was that he went with his friend, David Jacoby, who, or Jacoby, however you want to pronounce that, pictured here, to look for his son. They both worked for an ice cream distributor there in West Memphis and normally worked an early morning to an early afternoon shift. So he was normally home at night with the kids. So he said that he and his friend, David Jacoby, actually drove around looking for the boys that evening, ending up at the uh, restaurant where his wife, Pam Hobbs, worked where he phoned in the missing persons report and then Officer Regina Meeks, Super Police Officer Regina Meeks, comes out to take the statement. And I'm not trying to come down on her. I just think it's weird that she seemed to be the only police officer on duty that night and didn't really turn in these reports. I just, West Memphis, Arkansas Police probably going to arrest me the next time I'm in there because I'm talking so much smack about them. But I don't think this case was handled appropriately. But they questioned them, and they both concurred that they had searched the woods, ending up back at the catfish restaurant around the time that Pam Hobbs got off her shift at 9 p.m. Now, remember, we talked about earlier the people that had seen the boys alive. They said the last time they saw them was about 6.30. And after the bodies were found, police were estimating that the murders took place sometime between 6.30 and 8 p.m. 
So just the fact that the only alibi backing these two guys up was their own confession that they had been up around searching for for the kids. Keep that in mind. And so the police kind of accepted their alibi and didn't really take that any further, which I think is weird. But some interesting information would come out on Terry Hobbs later on, which we'll get to in part three. Now, early in the earlier in the day, May 6th, now this is before information that the boys' bodies had been found was released to the general public. Well, you had a lady named Vicki Hutchison, who was a new arrival to West Memphis, Arkansas. She was working at one of the truck stops around that Robin Hood Hills area. Was questioned by the Marion Police Department, which is a nearby small town in Arkansas as well. She was questioned by them because her boss suspected she had been stealing from the cash register there in the truck stop. Now, when she came to speak to the officer, she brought her young eight-year-old son, Aaron. Now, the Marion Police Department detective that interrogated her, Don Bray, was pretty myth that she had brought an eight-year-old to an interrogation. Why would you do that? But her excuse was that Aaron was a friend of the missing boys, the boys that are missing, that had seen them the day before and might have some information to lead to them being found. Well, of course, Detective Bray is really interested in this information and decides he's not only going to speak to Vicki, he's also going to speak to Aaron. So he begins questioning Aaron, and Aaron says that earlier that day at school, he saw, quote, a tall black man with yellow discolored teeth talking to Michael Moore at school. And Michael told him, that the man was telling him that his mom had sent him to pick him up from school. Now, of course, when the police later questioned Michael Moore's mom, she said absolutely not. She did not send anybody to pick up her son, and that was a lie. And Aaron said that Michael did not feel comfortable going with the guy, you know, stranger danger, all of that. Good choice and refused to go with the guy. And the guy kind of pushed back a little bit, but then meandered off when they threatened to go get a school official. All right, so they never reported this to anybody at the school, which I have little nephews. It's kind of run-of-the-mill for little boys and some little girls. They don't want to raise a fuss, get people involved if they don't have to. He probably figured, I took care of this. Mom's going to be proud of me. No need to tell anybody. So... Also, during that investigation, Aaron confessed that he had heard John Mark Byers, who again pictured here lower right, say to a friend that he didn't like kids, he didn't like any kids, not even his own. So that led them to question John Mark Byers, thinking he might have killed the kids to get rid of his own stepson, even though he adopted him, and killed the other kids because they were there. So... They questioned John Mark Byers. He was eventually cleared of being a person of interest, but that suspicion was raised. Now, after he finished questioning Aaron, he did start to question Vicky, the detective. And Vicky said that the boys had come to her house about four o'clock on 
the day that they disappeared, which was the day before, and had wanted Aaron to go with them to play in Robin Hood Hills, and she refused to allow her son to go play with them because Robin Hood Hills was considered kind of dangerous. So she said no, they left. So they figured, so she was glad because she figured her son might be missing too if she had gone off to um, allow them to go off and play. Now, Don Bray called West Memphis PD and said that, hey, I got these people here. They have, might have some information on the missing boys, which it was at that time that West Memphis PD released the information to him that the, it was no longer a missing person. It was now a homicide. And, of course, Don Bray went immediately into more interrogation. Now, um, as I'd said earlier, there seemed to be a whole lot of interest in the occult because of the way the murders played out, the way they were tied, the fact that their genitals were mutilated, that kind of thing. They People really believed this was an occult killing. And when it comes to people that are into the occult in West Memphis, Arkansas, not a whole lot of them because it was a very... I don't like to use the words right-wing and left-wing, but it was a very right-wing, conservative, religious town. So there wasn't a whole lot of people actively practicing occult, occult religions there. So when you say occult in the town of West Memphis, you actually instantly go to young people who are perhaps into heavy metal music, have weird types of collections, that sort of thing. And... Of all of the young people in West Memphis, Arkansas, there was one that came to everyone's mind when you talked about a cult, and that was Damien Eccles. And we're going to get into more about him here in a few minutes. But just to tie all of this together, Vicki Vicky Hutchinson actually said that she had overheard Damien around... Uh, Back in April, no, excuse me, back in April at a Wiccan service in a nearby Arkansas town, claimed that he was going to kill three kids to take their magic. And because she had that information and was friends with Damien Eccles, I don't understand why, you know, a 30-something-year-old woman is friends with, you know, an 18-year-old kid, but okay, it's, it's, it's West Memphis. But... Okay, so they asked her, would she be willing to wear a wire and talk to Damien and see if they could get some information? So already they're zeroing in on a suspect. One that until this moment has remained absolutely clean except for rumors and speculation about occult practices. So on June 1st, 1993, Vicki does wear a wire, have, on a converse, have a conversation with Damien, but unfortunately it was inaudible and nothing of it could be used. And then she also said that she overheard him at another Wiccan... Coven meeting that say that he was the one that killed the three kids. However, all of that is just hearsay because they couldn't get anything incriminating on him. Now, Vicki Hutchison would later go on to recant, saying that she felt pressured by police who were threatening to prosecute her for the theft at her job if she didn't if she didn't say these things. Um, Aaron Hutchinson later on at the age of nineteen came out and said that he made a lot of what he said about John Mark Byers up, though he didn't, he never said anything about um, the 
alleged black man that tried to pick Michael Moore up from school. He never really said anything about that testimony one way or the other. So there was two that later on said what they said was largely fabricated. Now, there were also two other suspects in town, Chris Morgan and Brian Holland, that were small-time drug dealers that had been in and out of trouble that everybody agreed had a, a violent nature that they would not have hesitated to kill three little boys if they had stumbled on to something that they shouldn't have. So they started trying to look into them, but they actually fled West Memphis a couple of days after this happened and headed to California. Well, they put out a, a kind of a warrant on them, a person of interest warrant on them, and they were picked up by Oceanside, California Police, May 17th, 1993. Now, if you want to listen to their tapes, it's about an hour and a half long of interrogation. You can find them on YouTube. Just Google it. I listened to all of them. In those tapes, they did not claim to know anything about the murders, but they also both confessed that they were kind of prone to blackouts from drug use and it was possible that they could have killed them even though both of them later recanted that but it was just weird but they never really pursued anything else about chris morgan and brian holland now remember mr bojangles the uh one that uh, regina meeks investigated through the drive through window on the night that the boys disappeared, well, he came back up because of the testimony of Aaron Hutchinson or the, the story related by Aaron Hutchinson about the black man that tried to pick Michael Moore up at school. Now you've got this black man that came into Bojangles restaurant around the time that within the time frame that people say the murders could have happened was covered with blood in the women's restroom and then Regina Meeks decided to go take an egg throwing call instead of going after him and trying to bring this guy in. Because if you're covered with blood, that's probable cause to at least question you. But uh, so because of that, they decided to go ahead and send another officer, Bryn Ridge, back to Bojangles the next day on the 7th to see if there was any evidence left from Mr. Bojangles. Well, of course, being a restaurant and having to obtain, you know, having to maintain the sanitation standards, the women's restroom had already been thoroughly cleaned, but he was able to find a few blood scrapings on a corner of a wall, and he did take that evidence, but he lost it. It never made it to any sort of DNA lab or anything like that. He lost it, and there's actually evidence of him from the trial saying that, oops, I lost it. So there was the Mr. Bojangles lead, just blown. Blown to kingdom come. All right, so those were a few of the preliminary suspects. But again, because of it being the occult, all arrows started to point to Damien simply because they suspected these were satanic ritual killings. Now let's get into Mr. Eccles and the other two members of the West Memphis Three and then we'll get further into the investigation. Damian Wayne Eccles was born December 11th, 1974 in West Memphis, Arkansas. He was born as Michael Wayne Hutchinson to Joe and Pam Hutchinson of West Memphis. Um, he had a younger sister named Michelle. And by all accounts, they lived in abject poverty. This was a family that social services 
called on quite a bit because the children sporadically attended school. They moved six or seven times in two years, as far as, as Damien's memory of it. Uh, they lived in places with no electricity, no running water. They once lived in basically a storage shed behind someone else's house that had an extension cord rigging it for electricity, but had no running water. Uh, Damien, in his book, Life After Death, which I actually listened to on Audible, has a lot of great information. I highly recommend it um, if you're interested in this case. He recounts having to haul water from a local um, water source, a well, and even sometimes just buy gallon jugs at the store, heated up on a gas stove to be able to take a bath. And he said because they could only haul so much water many times, everyone else would bathe before him, and he would just reheat the same bath water that everyone else had used to, to be able to bathe himself. So they lived at a level of poverty. In fact, Damien has been known to say this on quite a few interview shows. They lived in a level of poverty that a lot of people don't realize actually exists in the United States. Um, they would never have had new school clothes, uh, Christmas, anything like that if it hadn't have been for charities actually bringing them candy and food and new clothes and toys around the holidays. And Damien said he grew to look forward to these visits because he knew he would get the stuff that he wanted and needed. Uh, very sporadic in school, but Damien was highly intelligent. He loved to read. He read everything that he could get his hands on. And when he was in school, he did really well without a whole lot of extra help. So extremely bright. I don't know if he ever had his IQ tested, but I'm willing to believe it's probably over, you know, 160. Um, okay, I'm sorry about cutting out there. My dog is laying in front of our gas heater. He's like me. It doesn't matter what the temperature is. If it if he sees a fire or a fireplace or a gas heater with a flame in it, he's going to stop and stand in front of it. I don't know why that is. You know, hit the light button if you do that too. But he was literally laying as close to it as he possibly could without burning himself and was has gotten so hot he was loudly panting. And I had to turn off the recorder and tell him to move. So, yeah. Sorry about that. So, back to Damien. Uh, so he did quite well in school, very bright young man, but that kind of poverty, I, the number one cause of divorce in this country is just money fights and money problems in general. So I can imagine what Joe and Pam Hutchinson's marriage was like living in that kind of poverty. Joe drank a lot. He considered himself a failure because he couldn't lift his family out of poverty. I don't know that all the ins and outs of what was going on there, why he couldn't hold a job, but they eventually split up and Joe took off to Oregon, though he will re-enter the story a little bit later. And Pam was living as a single mother, still in the same kind of object poverty. She did start attending St. Michael's Catholic Church there in West Memphis, where she met Jack Eccles, and Jack Eccles, you know, had a home, uh, had a job, you know, was everything Joe wasn't as far as income was, and he started to take a light to the much younger Pam, and started treating her, taking her out, uh, and eventually they got married, and wanting to have harmony in the family, um, Pam kind of pressured Michelle and then Michael, Damien, to allow 
Jack to adopt them. Now, Michelle did it fine, no problem, but Damien was a little more hesitant. He didn't like, the. he already had a father. He loved his dad. He didn't want another father. Also, he didn't like Jack because he, in his words and from his book, Jack was a very religious yet hateful man. Jack was very pious, did the Catholic, whole Catholic thing of being very, you know, ceremonial, but was really not a good person. He said that he would actually abuse their, their Chihuahua dog. Uh, he would yell at the kids, uh, physically lay his hands on them, abuse them, be very cruel to his mom, Pam. And he didn't think him, he didn't think he was a very good person, even though he was religious. So Damon didn't really like Jack and didn't want him for a father, but because of pressure put on him by his mom, for harmony in the family, he allowed Jack to adopt him and also subsequently changed his first name. Now, a lot of people have said that, and this is what the investigators during the trial tried to say, that he changed his name to reflect Damien from the Omen movies, the Antichrist, but that's not actually true. Um, during the trial, they did ask him why he changed his name, and he very politely said that in, in their studies at St. Michael's, they were studying the saints, and they got to St. Damien of Hawaii, who was the one that ran the legendary leper colony that was on one of the smaller islands there. And he actually ran that leper colony for his whole life, actually contracted the disease himself, and died. But he was a man full of mercy, full of love for his fellow man, especially the downtrodden. And Damien considered that to be the mark of a man and decided to change his name to that of St. Damien or Father Damien of Hawaii, not Damien from the Antichrist movie, from the Omen movies. So he did change his name officially to Damien Wayne Eccles. He kept his middle name Wayne, though. Um, so even though they had food to eat and a roof over their head, you know, dealing with Jack was not always easy for Damien. So he kind of escaped into books. He went to school. He didn't go to school a lot, though. When he did go, he went, he went, he did very well. But his sister Michelle was involved in choral at school and things like that. So he did go to a concert one time with the entire family to see her perform and at that concert, he met a young woman named Deanna Holcomb. Now, Deanna Holcomb was from a very strict Catholic family. Your traditional girl next door, just really likable. And Damien fell head over heels for her and the same for, for her towards him. And they began dating. And Damien, she would take Damien to her home. He met her family. They accepted him. There was nothing you know, out of the ordinary, except her being raised in a very pious family. There were things they would not allow Deanna to do. Well, Damien did, of course, didn't have the same view of religion as they did. And of course, you know, you're a young man wanting to get into a young woman's pants, for lack of a better term. Uh, that doesn't really sit well with you. But Deanna did confess to Damien that she was actually a secret Wiccan, that she was practicing the Wiccan religion. That piqued Damien's interest, and they started, like, communing with the other Wiccans or witches, as they're sometimes called, that were in the town, and he developed an in more interest in the occult that way. Also, Damien had things like a skull collection, 
Uh, he listened to heavy metal music. He did bizarre drawings, just all kinds of things that would lead everybody to believe this kid was just bad. Um, but Damien wasn't, there wasn't all, you know, rose-colored glasses with Damien. Damien had a lot of documented illnesses, especially mental illnesses. Um, if you want to check out his medical records, you can. They're part of the official court docket. You can see them, or court papers. There's over 500 pages there. I read some of it. And let's just say that he is, you know, depressed, possible schizophrenia, psychosis, um, just weird stuff. He he spent some time, which we're going to talk about um, a little bit later, in some mental hospitals where some unusual things happened. So Damien was by no no point the most upstanding person of pure mental health that you could find. But Deanna seemed to calm him. And so for a long time, they dated. Uh, they actually, he started aiding her in skipping school so they could go to his parents' house where they didn't really care what happened. I don't understand Jack being very religious and then allowing stuff like that to go on in his house, but you know. So they would go back to Damien's house and have sex instead of her going to school. And one day she got caught skipping school and that was the end of their relationship. So Damien went a little nuts. You know, his first love was gone. He still loved her, but he did meet another young lady by the name of Dominique Tier who was a really good friend of his that he loved and cared for, but wasn't quite in love with. But they became friends with benefits and started having sex. And so he was with Dominique, but then he heard that Deanna was dating another a man and another boy. And he actually confronted this boy. And the rumors was he tried to, you know, pluck his eyes out, which, you know, he didn't. He just tried to beat the shit out of him, as a man, young man sometimes does when uh, the woman that he loves is with another man. But eventually, Deanna came back to him, and he cut it off with Dominique, went back to Deanna. Uh, they tried to run away. In late April of 1993, they tried to run away and go to California. Um, his good good friend, Jason Baldwin, went with them, but Jason actually left and went back home. But they were actually caught spending the night in an abandoned trailer along I-40 and uh, were taken back into custody. And that was officially the end of he and Deanna. And after he did spend some time in the local juvenile court system and in a mental hospital after that incident, while this was going on, things kind of blew up at the Eccles home. Jack was accused of molesting Michelle, his younger sister, and Pam put him out. And then Joe Hutchinson, who had taken off to Oregon, ended up coming back, seeing if he could get his family back. He had actually married and divorced in Oregon, had a couple of kids, but came back to see if he could claim his original family. And both Pam and Joe came to the juvenile detention center to visit Damien. And Damien was ecstatic to see his father and glad to have him back. Um, but... Things weren't always roses. Like I said, he did spend some, they put him in a mental hospital for a while. While there, he did try to drink the blood from another patient. That's documented in his medical records, but he said it was just childhood. It was just curiosity. He wanted to see what it tasted like. So the guy injured himself. He tried to drink the blood. Um, not something I would choose to do, but he's a, he's just a boy curious. I can see how that could happen, you know? Yeah. So along these lines, 
he was in and out of the hospital, in and out of mental hospitals, even out of juvenile, for about a month before these murders took place. All right, that's Damien Eccles. Also, it was, uh, even in his book and in some other sources, it was sourced that he had a great interest in death. Uh, he was accused of beating a Great Dane to death at a trailer park and then taking its skull and drying it out. This was collaborated by Jason Baldwin and a, his mom as well because she wouldn't let him bring the skull into the house. She thought he had found it, so she made him put it outside so that it would dry. So just some weird stuff going on there. So keep that all in mind as we get further into this. But let's move on to the next suspect. Jason Baldwin was born April 11, 1977 in West Memphis, Arkansas. Not a whole lot on his childhood or family, uh, but he grew up fairly normal childhood. Also developed an interest in the occult, heavy metal music, things like that. Pretty typical for a teenager in the 90s. I mean, I graduated from high school in 93. I wore a lot of black. I wore, you know, I listened to Metallica. I listened to, you know, ACDC. I listened to, you know... Foo Fighters and Nirvana and, you know, I was at a Foo Fighters concert last year. You know, there's some things that you just don't. So having an interest in music and not weird, but one thing that we do know is he was a great student, a straight A student, and he had a penchant for drawing. And he was encouraged by his uh, parents and teachers to pursue a degree in art or graphic design. He drew a lot of macabre type art like Damien Eccles did, and he was also Damien Eccles' best friend. So they hung around together, they did everything together, and yeah. Let's move on to the third suspect. And I hope I, it doesn't say that I'm sh trying to short sheet these guys, but there's just not as much on them as there is Damien. Damien's written a couple of books. Damien's been very open about his surroundings and his growing up where the two other two have been a little more guarded so it's hard to find all that information but jesse miskelly jr was born july 10th 1975 in west memphis arkansas to jesse miskelly jr senior and his wife one thing we know about him it was a very hand-to-mouth type of existence for these guys very blue collar um we do know that jesse had an IQ of approximately 72, which puts him way below the normal range, almost on the spectrum. I, ha I hate to use that word, but it's true. I mean, he was not as intelligent as the other guys, perhaps, and certainly not as savvy or street smart. So these were the three suspects that were honed in on by the West Memphis Police Department. Mainly Damien and the other two got brought in because they were friends of his. So let's get back to the investigation. All right, so now that we've gone over the, the three suspects that because of the testimony of Aaron and Vicki Hutchinson kind of came into the forefront with all the interest in the occult and the fact that this was probably an occult murder. But um, police, there were three main police officers on this case. One's name will be prominent as we talk about this, but you had police officers James Sudbury and juvenile parole officers Jerry Driver and Steve Jones. Remember, Steve Jones was the one that actually found the bodies in uh, the drainage pipe there at Robin Hood Hills. Jerry Driver, though, is the one that will kind of rise to the top as being the main one to conduct this investigation as well as to kind of zero in on Damien Eccles and his friends. 
And I'm not saying that because I necessarily believe these guys are innocent. I know I, I'm undecided. I don't know. But I'm just saying that it was documented by a lot of well-versed sources that Jerry Driver had a bit of an occult obsession. He was even the one that during the trial brought in the mail-order PhD guy, a guy with a mail-order PhD in occult studies, whatever that is. Uh, to testify about the occult aspects of this trial. So he was obsessed with the occult and the fact that the satanic panic and Satan was behind all crimes. He was just obsessed with it. So keep that in mind as we go on. So as we had discussed earlier, Damien had been in, in and out of the mental hospital. Um, basically, after he got out, after he and uh, Danielle were were arrested for trying to run away. Um, his father, Joe, took the entire family back to Oregon. And he lived there for a while, no issues, worked with his dad at a gas station, but then he began to miss Danielle a lot, tried to call her. She seemed to act really funny on the phone, so he got worried, wanted to go back. Of course, his parents were in no way, shape, or form going back to Arkansas, so he was just kind of stuck. He was in Oregon, in and out of school, wasn't really taking anything seriously, and he just decided he needed to decompress. It was about this time that his mom urged him to just go apply for disability because of the mental illness that was well documented in his medical records, which he did, and he did get a monthly check for that. So that helped out the family, of course, but he still decided he needed something to kind of chill out. So there was one particular day he was feeling really down, he decided to have some Kalula and milk. Well, his mom caught him with the Kalula and milk, and Pam overreacted and called the his juvenile officer, the one who had been assigned to him in Oregon when they left Arkansas, and the juvenile officer came over, questioned Damien, ended up taking him into custody and taking him back to the Oregon State Mental Hospital. Well, Damien absolutely went ballistic on his mom, saying, you've got me in trouble again. Damn you. Why can't you just let me be? But Anyway, while in custody, his family kind of pulled back from him, and about that time, Jerry Driver, because again of the testimony of Vicki Hutchinson, decided that this was their man. This is the one that committed these murders and was the ringleader about by it. So he began to kind of question things. He actually, after Damien got out of the mental hospital in Oregon and went back home, Jerry Driver actually called an associate in an Oregon police department and asked them to go out and kind of question Damien about these missing kids. Well, the police officer himself that came out and talked to Damien called Jerry Driver back and said, there's nothing here. There's nothing occult. There's nothing weird with this family. Leave them alone. But Jerry Driver wasn't having it. He was still trying to kind of pin this, I think, on Damien. So Damien finally tells his parents, I'm 18, I want to go back to Arkansas, I want to be with my girlfriend, I, I'm, I'm done. So he actually left Oregon, returned to Arkansas to live with his grandparents there. But it was very close to the time a lot of this happened, and Jerry Driver was kind of raising a ruckus. Also, the fact that Damien still kind of continued to get in and out of trouble in Arkansas led him to be arrested a couple of times in West Memphis while he was there. And he was it was basically told by his grandparents to 
Remember Jack Eccles, the child molester, Jack Eccles, since he was now his adopted father, it was his responsibility and Damien needed to live with him. So Damien ended up back in West Memphis living with a stepfather that he hated in the small town he had tried to escape from. Lo and behold, these murders happen and Jerry Driver continued to hone in, you know, Damien was still kind of going back and forth between Oregon and Arkansas, and it was during this time that Jerry Driver actually had Arkansas investigate him, and he ended up in, back in West Memphis living with Jack, and finally, finally, May 7th, two days after the murders, and the day after the first initial testimony from Vicki Hutchison and Aaron Hutchinson, Damien was actually brought in by Jerry Driver, James Sudbury, and Steve Jones to officially be questioned as a person of interest in these murders. He was interrogated for about eight hours, and during that time, it is recorded on paper what he said. It wasn't recorded in video because all the other interrogations were recorded by the West Memphis police. These weren't. They did not record Damien's interrogation at all. So we don't have video evidence of that. We only have written evidence, which is where all this is coming from. During that time, they asked Damien, did he have an alibi for the night of May 5th? And he said, yes, he and his best friend, James Baldwin, went to James' uncle's house. And then they went, he went home and he spent the majority of the time on the phone that night with some friends of his from Memphis girls. So they, they spoke to those girls. Some of them remembered being on the phone with Damien. Some didn't. There's a lot of conflicting evidence. Some say they did. Some say they didn't. But that was his alibi. Uh, Jack Eccles by that time was drinking a lot. So he really wasn't a good alibi for Damien. So Damien was kind of left with a alibi with a lot of holes in it. And uh, <clears throat> so basically the police continued to question. They also started to kind of question him about why do you think this person did this? And Damien, because of his interest in the occult, had read a lot about that and simply said uh, he was probably happy he did it because he evidently wanted to do it, so why wouldn't he be happy that he did it? And he probably felt he got power from it. You know, he was just talking from his knowledge about that. And they decided that was sort of a semi-confession. So they ended up letting him go with a warning not to leave the city. Uh, they continued their investigation. June 3rd, they brought in Jesse Miskelly Jr., and they interrogated this man for 12 hours. A lot of leading-type questions, but also they did stop. There is a recording of his entire of his entire interrogation. You can find it on YouTube. Um, some of the questions were good. Some were fine. Some were very leading, I found. Um, and remember, this guy had an IQ of 72, so he wasn't the, or lower IQ, wasn't, the brightest bulb in the pack. So it was very easy for, it would be very easy for anybody to get over on him. And I, and they basically, after about four hours, he started to confess to these murders. He literally confessed that he, even though he didn't kill any of the boys, he was there with Damien and Jason, Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin, and held the boys. He even ran and caught Michael Moore. He said, Michael Moore, ran away, he ran and got him, brought him back, and he watched while they were beaten, stabbed, and sodomized. And he wasn't really calling the kids by name, though. He was pointing to photographs of the boys. He would say that one, 
that one. And there was a few times he got the names mixed up, but, you know, I, I suppose that would be easy for anybody to do. But let's just say that during this 12-hour interrogation, he confessed to these crimes and implicated both Damien and James Baldwin in it. Um, but a lot of the questions that the police were asking included Damien and James' names, which to me, that's a little bit leading. But I'll let you, if you want to go check out those videos, I highly recommend you watch them. Draw your own conclusions. But I do think that this 12-hour confession was a little, a little speculative at best. But anyway, based off of that confession, James, Damien, and Jesse were officially arrested for these murders about a month later. And we prepare now for the trial of Jesse Miskelly Jr. and Damien Eccles. And I will move on to that trial during the next part of West Memphis 3. I hope you've enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Like, comment, share, subscribe if you want to support the channel. I've got links below for that. Really appreciated. Never required. Thank you so much. Keto Comic. Out.